believe that God wants you to be fully alive to the to the call that he's put on your life. And that call might be to business. That call might be to the classroom. But I just want you to do it with all your heart and do it filled with joy. And today, I, I want to preach a message from God's word that I, I believe is really going to bring joy back to some of your hearts. Some of you, you've had these dreams that are just dormant and you're like, what's going on with that? And, and I just want to encourage you, hey, God's not done with your dream. And, and so before we dive into that Bible lesson, I want to set it up by, by just uh, sharing a, a story I read a little while ago. Many of you guys have heard about billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Facebook or Bill Gates, or right now everybody's talking about Elon Musk. But back in the 1920s, there was this group called the Magnificent Seven back in the 1920s. And they were called the Magnificent Seven because they were the seven richest and most powerful humans on the earth at that time. Some people even felt that these seven men were more powerful than the entire U.S. federal government. Uh, I mean, Charles Schwab was a, was a steel baron. Leon Fraser controlled the entire banking industry. Albert Fall wasn't merely a U.S. senator and a member of the president's cabinet, but he was one of the ten richest men in America. And the whole world was talking about the Magnificent Seven because they decided to all meet together in Chicago and talk about their plans for the world. And it was like global domination. It was like the Illuminati. You know, like everybody was talking about the Magnificent Seven. All of the headlines were about the Magnificent Seven. What's going to happen? And they called it the Summit of Power. And it was at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Well, so... Get this, fast forward about 30 years from the summit of power, uh, a Chicago journalist happened to be, uh, just happened to be going through old newspapers and saw all the headlines that were just like, you know, building up this summit of power. And he thought, gosh, that was 30 years ago already. How crazy. Like, I wonder, you know, all the money and all the power these guys had, I wonder what happened to the plans they made at the summit of power. I'm going to look into this. And so he started researching it and check out what he discovered 30 years later. What happened to the Magnificent Seven? Let me tell you about them. By 1950, Charles Schwab had lost all of his money in the stock market crash, and he finished his life on borrowed money. He had to borrow money just to keep his lifestyle up. Arthur Cutton, he died while being brought to trial in disgrace. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, was found guilty of embezzling millions and had just been released from prison by 1950. U.S. Senator Albert Fall was convicted of bribery, and in 1944, he was paroled from prison just to die at home. Ivor Kruger, Leon Fraser, and Jesse Livermore all committed suicide when their financial empires were exposed as Ponzi schemes. In other words, the Magnificent Seven turned out to be not so magnificent. You see, I share this because I think there's a lot of times in life when life just doesn't seem fair. Do you know what I mean? And when you compare, you despair. And it feels like, it feels like everyone around us is getting ahead in life except for us. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're the only one? You're trying to get pregnant and then fertile myrtle just, you know, cranks out eight babies, right? You're trying to get that one job and then your idiot friend gets all the promotions and you're like, what? Like, how in the world does that person get that? You know what I mean? I, I think sometimes 
times. You and I, whenever we start dreaming God-sized dreams and start praying God-sized prayers, it just feels like it takes forever before God responds. It just, you know what I mean? And sometimes it feels like unrighteous people um, are, are getting ahead, and yet you and I, were like, where, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And I, I just, listen, I, I want to encourage you, when you log enough years on planet Earth, everyone will go through delays. Everyone will have long seasons of waiting where it feels like our prayers are going unanswered. But make no mistake, God is listening. I want, I want to prove it to you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 9. Let me read it to you. See, it starts out by saying, do not be deceived. And here's why it starts that way. Because it's very easy for us to be deceived in this exact area. And so the Bible starts out, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, their sin nature, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit of God, from the spirit will reap eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, he's saying everything we do in our lives, every tiny little deed, every prayer we pray is like a seed that is planted into the ground. Every behavior, good and bad, has a tendency to reproduce itself. Think about that. In other words, every good thing we do will produce a dozen more good things. Every, suddenly it makes it kind of scary about sin too, right? Every bad thing we do can produce a harvest as well. It reproduces itself. Now, why, why does the Bible use so many seed and farming metaphors? It's because, you know, throughout most of history, you know, people were farmers. Think about it. I mean, uh, seed time and harvest were two probably uh, of the most powerful principles on earth. So, for example, you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Go back to Genesis, there's the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis, And then in Genesis chapter 3, it was where sin entered the world. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because if you study it, you'll realize that farming only became toilsome after sin entered the world. Like, it, it, the Bible seems to imply that before sin entered the world, um, man just spoke at the ground, spoke words, and it just kind of happened just like that. You know, like bibbidi-bobbidi-boop, and then suddenly the house got clean, right? Seeds got sown into the ground. Like, you spoke, and things happened. But after that, sin, the farming became toilsome. And some of you, you may not have ever noticed this before. Let me read this to you. Genesis 3.17 says this. Genesis 3.17 to Adam, God said, so after sin entered the world, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Watch what happens. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now watch this. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. Sweat, okay? By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Implying that it wasn't sweaty, it wasn't toilsome. Work was none of these things up until 
this point in time from this point forward your life is now going to be toilsome it's going to be sweaty and it's going to require effort you're going to have to put seeds into the dirt and then wait for it to produce something now why why would god make this process a consequence for sin just think about it for a second i know this is kind of deep but just stick with me putting seed in the dirt is awkward i mean really i mean it requires patience it requires diligence it requires vigilance essentially get this it requires faith i mean you mean to say this thing this tiny little seed i put it in dirt I wait, I put water and things like that on it, and then somehow it produces, boom, this giant tree. It makes no sense. It doesn't seem logical, right? I mean, it's actually really, really weird. We take it for granted how weird it is, but it's actually really, really weird, this process, and it actually requires faith. So God was essentially saying to Adam and Eve, not to be mean, but actually to be redemptive, he's actually saying, hey, because of your lack of faith in me, you're going to spend a lifetime doing a process that requires you to exercise your faith muscle. And that faith muscle is going to require something called waiting. Congratulations, you get to wait. Okay, now some of you, you're like, oh, that sounds awful. Actually, it's the very thing that will redeem you. It's the very thing that will enable you to become what God intends you to become. It's doing the awkward process of seed time and harvest, waiting for faith to produce things. Now, here's where things get really profound, okay? As basic as that concept is, it's amazing how we as human beings still struggle to grasp it. I'm just going to be honest. I still struggle to grasp it. Over the years, I've noticed that that I tend to make three mistakes when it comes to seed time and harvest, sowing and reaping. And here they are, okay? And you note takers, you're going to want to write these down. You just take out your phone, write these down. And I'm going to say these multiple times because I want you to internalize this. Some of you, this is going to be the very thing that's going to enable you to to fast forward your dreams. This is the very thing God is waiting for us to understand. Okay, three things. Number one, we expect to reap things we have not sown. We expect to reap things in our timeline, not in God's timeline. And number three, we assume that good intentions should automatically plant seeds or cancel out bad ones. Okay, now let me just, let me visit these again, because again, as basic as this concept is, we miss it all the time. The first one, we expect to reap things we haven't sown. Now, for example, um, I remember about 10 years ago when our church started growing really fast, I realized I did not have enough mentors in my life. Um, our, our church substance was really starting to grow, and I, I, I became very well aware of the fact that I did not know what I was doing. And you know what? Uh, who am I kidding? My church knew it too, okay? It, our church was kind of a mess at the time, and I, I was like, I knew this is the biggest church I've ever pastored, and uh, I, I needed more mentors. And, and some of you, you know what I'm talking about because you just had your first kid, and you're like, oh, God, what did I just get myself into? Come on, you know who you are, right? You're like, is this, like, I, I, I should not be entrusted with a human being. You know what I'm just saying? Like, and there's some people you still wonder, you know, like it's me, 
amazing that they're allowed to have kids. But you know what I mean? Like, holy cow, this was not as simple as I expected. I need mentoring in my life. At some point, at some point, all of us need to ask the question, do I have the necessary mentors to support the weight of my dreams? And a lot of us, we, we aren't, we don't have the mentors to support the weight of our dreams. And at that time, I was trying to get, there's this one lead pastor I really, really wanted to mentor me. And he was kind of a big deal. He had written books and, you know, he's kind of a, you know, one of those guys. And I really, really, really but I, I just knew in my heart, this is the guy I need to mentor me. He's the one who will be able to help me. And, um, and so I tried to get mentored by him and, 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 and I would ask him to mentor me. And to be quite honest, if I could just be honest, he, it kind of felt like he snubbed me, like he wasn't really interested at all. And, and so I, I don't know about you, but I got kind of mopey about it. And I was just, you know, I, I was getting kind of depressed. And I, I started whimperceding, where whimper session is where you whine and intercede at the same time. Come on, anybody ever done that? I, I was whimperceding, and I'm like, God, why does the world feel like it's against me? Why can't I get people to mentor me? And I was sulking in that moment. And of course, in the midst of my wine session, all of a sudden, I felt the Holy Spirit just impress this on my heart. Peter, you reap what you sow. And, and I knew it was God because it was not the thought in my head that I would have naturally thought. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think sometimes the voice of God, how do you know it's the voice of God versus a thought in your head? Well, generally speaking, God does not always agree with you. You know what I mean? So, and, and immediately I was like, oh, like, it was, it was super clear. Peter, if you want to be mentored by that guy, you know what you need to do? You need to start mentoring all the other people around you. You reap what you sow. You reap mentoring. You're expecting to reap what you haven't sown. You haven't even earned the right to be mentored by that guy. That guy's actually smart to not mentor you. You know what I'm saying? At the, and, and then all of a sudden in that moment, I realized, oh, wow, I'm being a self-centered, entitled punk who's expecting to reap what I had never truly sown. And so I remember kind of making a, a commitment to God that day that I am going to do everything in my power to share all of my resources, my money, my time, my emotions with the, with the pastors around me that just anybody that needed help, I would go and I would serve them. And I got to be honest with you, it, it's, it sounds a lot easier than it was because some of these pastors that I started mentoring were a pain in the butt. They would call me every Every day. Like, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? And I'm like, there was a point where I'd be like, you guys, I have my own church to pastor, okay? I'm not going to pastor your church for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and yet I knew I needed to, to, to sow into people. And, and, and by the way, I, I just want to say over the years that the, 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 the time that I've sown into even this church and your pastors, your pastors are easy, okay? They're like really low maintenance people. Well, let's be honest. Not Jamie, but uh, Jamie's a little high maintenance. But uh, Lude, you know, she's a little easier. Uh, no, but for real, I, I love your pastors. But some pastors, it would just be like, oh, please, could you like, oh, give me a break every now and again. Well, I, you know what's funny is take a wild guess over time who called me up and wanted to mentor me. The very guy I couldn't get access to early on. Think about it. I started realizing, oh, I'm reaping what I have sown. And so again, don't expect to reap things you haven't sown, church. You know what? If you want more money for date nights, you know what you need to do? Give other people money for date nights. 
Hello, you know what I'm saying? If you want free babysitters, then be a free babysitter. You see what I'm saying? You reap what you sow. Whatever it is you want, start sowing it. I, I remember like early on, I, I needed money for a, for a down payment for a building. And so I started every pastor that had a building project, I started giving money away. And it felt very counterintuitive. But listen, that's exactly what happened for me. And, and so the second mistake of sowing and reaping, we expect to reap things in our timeline, not in God's timeline. At some point or another, we've got to just acknowledge that God operates on a different timeline than some of you. I, the reason why I'm saying this is because some of you are, are, are tempted to abandon your field right before it sprouts, abandon your job right before you get promoted, abandon your marriage right before it gets awesome, abandon your holiness right before you experience the fruit of holy living. I'm just telling some of you, you need to stop and let your seed grow. Stop staring at the ground because it's not going to grow faster the more you stare at it. Come on, somebody. Some of you, it's like every single week. Why isn't this happening? Why isn't this happening? You're just like, you're talking about it all the time and you're actually making the time feel like it's passing slower. I I remember when I was a kid uh, in grade school, they used to give us these like styrofoam cups and then they would, you know, we'd put seeds in them and then we'd put them in the windowsill. And, you know, there was always that one irritating kid who had just grew up into a tree, but mine wasn't growing. And so every single day I'd go over to the windowsill and I'd look and and I'd start digging in the dirt of that cup. And of course, every single day, my teacher would be like, Peter, sit down, stop picking at your seed. You're actually making it grow slower. Why? Because I'm like, are you sure it's even growing? I don't think mine's growing. Why is theirs like that? And I was comparing. Some of you, stop picking at your seed. Chill out. Their harvest just happens to be in your sowing season. It doesn't always work the same for every person. In fact, many of the people we get jealous of, a lot of them, they actually had a more painful and longer sowing season than maybe you even realize. Okay, in fact, I would say most overnight successes were actually 10 to 15 years in the making. And so don't don't assume, just celebrate. When somebody's having a harvest, celebrate them. Because again, you reap what you sow. You know what I mean? If it can happen for them, it can happen for you. And therefore, last but not least, the third mistake we oftentimes make when it comes to sowing and reaping is we assume that good intentions should automatically plant seeds. Having good, having generous intentions is not the same as having generosity. Come on, somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you have a generous heart. Prove it. You know what I'm saying? I think a lot of times we think good intentions, we judge ourselves by our intentions, not our actions. At some point or another, we, sh- we, ha- we can't assume that good intentions should automatically plant seeds, or for that matter, that good intentions should just cancel out bad ones. So you said you're sorry. It's not the same thing as making a restitution for the things that we did. You know what I mean? Apologizing is not the same as making restitution for, for some of the bad seeds in our lives. At some point, We've got to reconcile. Intentions are not actions. I, I think a lot of times we judge ourselves by our intentions, but, but, but others, 
by their actions. You know what I mean? I, I think we, we love to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but, and we want our intentions to count towards the total. I remember I was in a fight with my wife and of course, you know, like halfway through the fight, I realized that I am completely wrong. Come on guys. Anybody ever admit that? Some of you are like, I'm not going to raise my hand for that. Right. I, but, but then halfway through the fight, I realized I am factually wrong and I am an idiot. But then in my heart, I, I kept arguing for some dumb reason because my pride was now in it. And I wanted her to at least give me, just can you give me something for my good intentions? I didn't intend to do that. Okay. Okay. And then I realized, Peter, you're an idiot. Just admit I'm 100% wrong. You know what I'm talking about? I think a lot of times we just, we want to be judged by our intentions. And so at some point or another, we have to reconcile with, with, with the bad mistakes we've made. Our, our, my church is filled with people who've got a, who've got a big history of issues, sex addiction, meth addiction, gossipers, bullies, you name it. I think we all have a sin nature that we have to give an account for. And sometimes those behaviors, those bad seeds are, are producing a harvest of emotions and consequences that can take a while to sort out. Okay. We have to reconcile that. So it begs the question, well, how do we cancel those bad seeds? How do we pray for crop failure, so to speak, right? Well, for starters, here's how you do it. Get planted in the local church. This is how you do it. Okay. Psalm 92 13 says this planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish. If you want to cancel out bad seeds, simply hang out with people who can pull the weeds, so to speak. I tell people all the time, best thing you can do, just get a ministry in your local church that causes you to get up every Sunday morning, hang around with Christians, and they're, over time, it can be kind of disconcerting, right? But over time, they're going to be able to pull out a lot of weeds in your life at a much greater rate than you would ever be able to do on your own. You can't do that just by watching sermons online. You got to get around people and have intimacy with people. And I realize intimacy with other Christians can be very difficult at times because sometimes they'll hold a mirror to the unflattering things. They'll tell you when you have a booger in your nose, come on somebody. You got to have friends that will be honest with you about your life. And so that, that's why, that's why your, your pastors are always wanting you to get involved at Lighthouse. People can't help you pull the weeds unless you're intimate enough for them to actually see your weeds. Does that make sense, everybody? Because one thing is for sure, having good intentions is not the same as good actions. We got to turn our faith into actions. And for some of us, that means confession of sin. And as one last example of this, I want to tell you, I want to end with the story of Alexander Kerr. It's really a, once you get to know me, I'm kind of a church history buff. I'm kind of a history buff and, and I'm kind of like your pastor in that sense. And, uh, in the beginning, I told you about the Magnificent Seven in Chicago. Well, let me tell you about another man in Chicago around that exact same time and in that exact same era, except this guy was the exact opposite of the Magnificent Seven. He had big dreams in his heart. He was an entrepreneur, but he wasn't very wealthy yet. And many of you guys have heard of mason jars, right? Kind of the glass canning jars. Um, the, the guy who actually invented the self-sealing lid was a guy by the name of Alexander Kerr. And so, uh, 
Kerr jars, you also see them. And, and what, made, what made Alexander Kerr different than the Magnificent Seven? Well, he was a passionate Christian. He was a passionate Christian. And even when he was desperate for finances, you know, like when you're a startup company, you need every dollar you can get, right? Even though he was desperate for, for finances, he felt compelled by God to tithe 10% of his income to the Lord as an act of faith. You see, Kerr knew that despite all the things that he could control in his life, there was far more he couldn't control. I mean, come on, competition was tough. The American economy was fragile. And so he really felt like, hey, if I tithe, if I live on 90% and give 10% to God, that God would enable me to do more than I could ever do with all 100% of my finances. He just, he knew that this was the step of faith that God wanted him to take. And, and so he, he basically felt like tithing was one of the ways that he made God his business partner. And so, by, but here's the deal. Whenever you take a step of faith, you can rest assured you will have a test of that same faith at some point. Come on. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Life, ultimately, everyone gets tested. So... Um, by 1906, his faith was seriously tested. Some of you, if you're a history buff, you might remember that year because that's the year there was a massive earthquake that destroyed the entire city of San Francisco, and news went all around the world about this disaster. And guess what? That's where Kerr's glass jar factory was. Okay, if you ever, like, if, I mean, if all your money is wrapped up in glass jars, which are stacked super high in a warehouse, I can't think of anything worse than a once-in-a-century earthquake. You know what I mean? The moment Kerr heard the news back in Chicago, all of his financial advisors, they, they called, him, called on him weeping, saying, we're done for. Our company is in ruins. There's literally nothing left. I mean, all of our money was wrapped up in that factory. And so Kerr actually, mess, he wired his team in San Fran, and they wired back. And they're like, you know, like he was like, what's going on with our factory? And they're like, oh, 80% of the city is still on fire. I mean, the heat is so intense. It's going to be several days before we can even go into the city and see if anything's left. But I can pretty much promise you there's nothing. There is nothing. I mean, almost the entire city is gone. Well, in the midst of that trial, Kerr, he grabbed his leaders together and he said, he said to all of his leaders, he goes, you guys, God is not going to abandon us. God is not going to go back on his promises. He promised me. If I would put him first, all these things that other people run after, they're just going to be added into me. And, and God is not going to forsake his promises, not to, the, not to me and not to anybody else who trusts in him. And so he just decided, I'm just going to praise God through this thing. And, and to, get this, a lot of his coworkers actually thought, oh no, Kerr has lost his mind. He's gone crazy. He's living in denial in fact, uh, one of them even tried confronting him on it. And he said, Kerr, stop all of this God talk. Stop, stop it. Stop all of this, like, ooh, God's going to rescue us stuff. If, you're insane if you think God is going to bail us out of this mess. And, and in fact, that guy started a coup in his company, and, and all these people started quitting, saying, Kerr's insane. 
we're not going to serve this guy anymore. This guy is crazy, and he's just a crazy Christian. And so not only does he have a disaster on his hands in his factory in San Fran, but he's got all these people mass quitting back in Chicago. And, and so, I mean, talk about the worst week ever. And yet, get this, okay? <clears throat> I love this. A week later, his staff wired him back and said, Alexander, you're never going to believe this, but almost every building in the entire city burned to the ground with the exception of a single factory. And can you guess whose it was? Alexander Kurz. Okay, get this. Get this. Every single building within a mile and a half radius was burned to the ground except for this factory. And you want to know what's even crazier? The factory was made entirely of wood, not of brick. And it was filled with huge tanks of flammable oil to melt glass, of course. I mean, it was probably the most flammable building in the entire city. And yet, rumor had it that when the flames got to the fences, it literally leapt over the building and burned down the rest of the city, with the exception of this single building. And, and even crazier, despite the violent earthquake, not a single jar of the thousands of jars that were stacked up on top of one another, not a single one of the jars fell over and broke. I mean, come on. You want to talk about a miracle. And not surprisingly, when Alexander actually went and saw his factory, he was so blown away. He was like, this is so obviously a divine miracle from God. He made the decision, I'm going to tour the country and I'm going to declare one singular message. And it's this, put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that other people run after. Matthew 6, they're just going to be added to you. Talk about a contrast to the Magnificent Seven. Here's my point in all of this, Lighthouse. All of us are going to be tested from time to time. You know that. All of us are going to feel impatient between seed time and harvest. You know that. All of us are going to be tempted to look at the Magnificent Sevens in our lives and think, why are they blessed but not me? But listen, at the end of the day, there's only one thing you and I need to focus on, and it's this. Are we staying faithful to plant seeds? Get more seed in the ground. Get more seed in the ground. Because if there's one thing I know for sure, Lighthouse, it's this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, Paul says. Remember this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And get this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God sees it. Every little prayer is a good work. Every little act of generosity, it's a good work. God sees it, and you will abound. And I'm sharing this lighthouse because, listen, this church has put a lot of seed in the ground. And, and, and I'm not talking about even just in the last five years. I'm talking about like yesterday, you guys were laying it out. The, the worship team were losing their voices, just leading pastors in worship. And I can promise you, church, Lighthouse is in for an amazing harvest season. Pastor Jamie and Lude, Lighthouse is, it, it, you guys have seed in the ground. 
and it's germinating there, okay? And, and, and I'm not saying this just for Jamie and Lude's benefit. I'm saying this for all of you. Don't miss the season of fertile ground. The day is going to come when you are going to be able to say at Lighthouse, people are going to come up to you and, and, and they're going to say, you're going to be able to be like, yeah, I remember back when Lighthouse used to meet in a movie theater. Wait, you mean Lighthouse didn't always own the mall? And you're going to be like, no, no, we were in a dark auditorium. You're going to, you're, you're going to, be, people are going to be like, you mean Lighthouse didn't always have water slides in the kids' ministry? And you're going to be like, oh, no, in the olden days. And you're going to be like the wise old person who's going to talk about the olden days, right? It, but here's the truth, okay? Let me just say this, and I'll end. Generosity in our time, our finances, our emotions They don't just multiply God's church, but it multiplies all of the areas where we're generous. And so right now, just close your eyes, wherever you're at. What are some of the harvests that you're dreaming about? I believe that God is going to speak to you about certain seeds to sow. Where is God calling you to sow more seed? I I believe that God wants to remind you, I've got you. I've got you. You, You've been wondering why the delay? I've got you, God says. Would you trust him to work something even greater than what you are doing? One thing I know for sure, everything in my life happens slow than sudden. And I believe the harvest works the same way. It's slow, and then it's sudden. And then when God moves, oh man, it's better better than I ever would have asked or imagined for.